If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry, where we tackle social, political, and cultural issues from the perspective of unapologetic guests while highlighting citizen activists doing amazing things throughout the country. On today's episode, I sit down with my friend Tara Strong. Tara is an activist, an actress, and has just the biggest heart ever. We talk about motherhood, she's raising two sons, what keeps her up at night, the importance of strong female characters, and how we miss Mr. Rogers. I'm Tara Strong, and I believe this country is in dire need of sensible gun laws. Sorry, not sorry. Hi, I'm Tara. You do my voice? You don't sound like me. I'm versatile. I used to do this voice a lot. Yeah, I wish you'd seen it. And pretty Pegasus. Huh, funny. All it takes is one giant gorilla attack in the city and I just waltz in the front door. Timmy McNulty. Four and a half. All right, McNulty's. Drop and give me six. You'd think since my uncle's doing so well, he'd give me a raise. But nothing. Oh, what'd you guys do? What's going on in here? Man, that was one tough montage. So I was trying to remember. I know the first time I met you in person was at the protest for the Dreamers. Yes. In front of Senator Feinstein's office. Yes, it was a DACA rally. That's right. And that, but I was trying to remember like the first time we had a conversation. I feel like it was on Twitter. Absolutely was on Twitter. It's so funny because in, you know, since doing the podcast and, and booking amazing people, I've met so many good friends on Twitter. In, in a time when you hear so often that Twitter sucks and it's the worst, um, because of how certain people use it for yeah. hate. Um, and we should talk a little bit about that for sure, because I know you deal with a lot of the same issues mm-hmm. that I deal with as far as trolls. Yeah. But I've met some really great friends. 100%, especially. It is a crisis what we're facing in this country. And and at the cusp of him becoming elected, the months before it, where you thought it can't go that way, can it? You, If you're a good soul, you innately felt that crisis. And when you're screaming in the void in Twitter with no one you know, really with no actual direction to put it, it was challenging, right? And then there's voices like you that are, of course, the same mentality that I have, reaching out, you followed me, and I was like, (gasps) (laughs) first of all, I've been obsessed with you since I was a little girl, but secondly, like, everything you say is is how I feel. So it was like there was this camaraderie, and then there was these other chat rooms where we're meeting people of like mind, and it's so therapeutic to not be screaming into the void, to have someone to bounce. And support. Yes. And that kind of support. So you felt that kind of 
crisis mode almost immediately, right? Oh, oh yes. Yeah. And and you're Canadian. Yes. So tell me about that. I mean, especially coming from such a sort of um, progressive country like right. Canada. 100%. And it's funny, you know, I knew I wanted to be an actress when I was five years old. I pictured myself moving to Hollywood and doing movies of the week. It was something innately in me. Movies I mean, of the yes, week. Yes. Yes. It's, it's something I always wanted to do. So great. Right? I want to be an after school special. Like it was always something I knew I wanted to do. And because I knew Hollywood was the hub of that, I always thought maybe one day Canada will be like another bunch of states. Like I thought we could just join forces. And I didn't grow up knowing the differences in the socioeconomic, in the healthcare, in, you know, a lot of the bigotry that you see. Toronto is a melting pot. There were kids of all color from all countries. Like you never, in my experience growing up, experienced Anything close to what I see going on right now, and it's shocking to think. That are it's you been... in Canada? Are you taught? So you grew up in Toronto. Yeah. Are you taught about racism? Yes, of course. You learn it in history books. You learn about the KKK. There's a tremendous amount on anti-Semitism. I w- I myself went to the concentration camps at 16 on a tour called the March of the Living, where you go to the camps during Holocaust Memorial Week, and then you go to Israel for Independence Day. And it's so educational and heartwarming to see how survival looks. And you learn about it, but it is not present in every day. You know, I remember as a little girl, one day our synagogue had a swastika painted on it, and it was a huge, huge deal and completely unheard of. And now it's so commonplace. But when the stuff started hitting the fan with Trump— it it really shocked me to to see the difference and and i'm like so much more proud of coming from Canada, where all these issues are so progressive. I remember when I first moved to town, I was really great friends with this kid, loved him so much, and he died of the flu because he couldn't afford to go to the doctor. He dropped dead at the emergency room door. And I was telling my friends that would never happen in Canada. Never. No one's afraid to go to the doctor because they fear paying for that bill. And there are so many things that work in Canada, like gun gun control, like healthcare, and in other parts of the world. Where we talk about, like, this is the greatest country ever, it's such a narcissistic view, as in who our president is, of different countries we can learn from and garner these amazing pieces of information that are working to make life better for humans. That's what it's all about, isn't it? To have the best human experience. What can I do to help you have the best human experience while you're here? I never waited for anything in my life. I chose my own doctors. My mother never paid for a prescription. It was fantastic. And I just got back from Vancouver. And I keep hearing this, like, Canadians are so nice. Canadians are so nice. They can be nice because they have health care. I mean, I think that the the idea that uh, people can get health care and that they don't die of preventable diseases. I mean, look, I'm an American doctor, but... I think we'll look back on, uh, you know, 30, 40 years from now on this chapter and say, so you did so many things right, yet people still died that didn't need to. That was an embarrassing chapter. And so I think, you know, you look at Tommy Douglas, you look at what, uh, you know, the average person, you, the average person has, they don't worry about, they don't worry about going bankrupt. It's an incredible country. Well, I've been sick in Canada, like when I shoot there. And just so so the listeners understand, you basically go to the emergency room, you see a doctor, they give you the medication right there. The quality of care is unbelievable. There is every single um, emergency room doctor is actually trained in psychiatry. So if you're coming in with some mental illness, like I have panic attacks and I went to an emergency room in, in Canada uh, with a panic attack, and it was 
such a difference working with a doctor that actually knew about that and not someone like here who specializes in generalized, you know, trauma or medicine. And then they send you home with medication and then follow up with you. I was like, I had a doctor, an ER doctor text me to see how I was doing, you know, a week after I had seen them. I feel like you see a lot more of that humanity and conscientious behavior coming from the medical community because it's not so money driven, right? So here's my question, I think, right now. What keeps you here? You know what I mean? When you're – and I mean that totally seriously because I have this conversation with David all the fucking time where – that's my husband – where I'm like, we have to at some point realize that we are making a very distinct choice to raise our children in a country where there's not only bigotry – and not only uh, just a complete divide between between everyone, even though there's diversity, we all stay in our own little worlds, but also the gun violence. We are making a choice to be here. And there are other places that are safe. So coming from one of those places that are actually safe, yeah. what keeps you here? No, that plagues me a lot. And I said, like, OK, if Trump gets reelected, we're moving. <laughs> like, like, is that your bottom line? I mean— No, but I say it, I verbalize it, I fantasize about that because you're right. There are so many other places to be. My kids have dual. I'm a dual. We could easily go to where not everyone's a sitting duck or having to face so many of the challenges that we're currently facing in this country. My kids fantasize about like going to those countries where there's no homework or you get to run in fields or whatever else. You know, like there's so many more interesting destinations to travel to. And I mean, ultimately, what keeps me here currently is I've built a life here. My kids are in school here. I have a career here. Could I do my career out elsewhere? Sure. Um, it's something I you, fantasize you're about. You're so established now in, yeah. in your field. No, believe me, I, I fantasize about getting out of Dodge. You know, it's that I always think about that saying that as mothers, we are meant to look like we are working with no children and raising children with no work. Mm-hmm. We are expected to compartmentalize everything and be the best at both. Mm-hmm. And it's hard. It is hard. It's really hard. How old are your boys? 17 and 14. I had the most extraordinary conversation with my 17-year-old about two days ago. Tell me. First of all, he's from another planet. He's constantly discussing, like, theories about where we've come from and aliens. And he's fascinating to talk to. And just out of the blue, he sat down and he said to me, Mom, I want to tell you something. I had the most extraordinary childhood coming with you to the studios and I used to bring them as babies with a nanny and I'd be doing my gig and then I'd come out and nurse them or come out and play with them or whatever it was. He said, I grew up at Nickelodeon and Cartoon Network and all these studios and meeting all these extraordinary people. I remember Kevin Michael Richardson. I remember E.G. Daly. I remember Cree Summer and these people coming to me and doing voices and engaging with me and I remember the colors and I remember being exposed to this extraordinary world that kids that go to daycare would never experience and I remember going to school and being miserable because I was missing Nickelodeon and I didn't understand how the other kids weren't missing Nickelodeon. <laughs> and he said, thank you for giving me such a rich childhood Ugh. in in that it was unique. That's all and you learning. want, right? right? And mom? he said, I, no, I don't feel like I, I missed out on anything not having other experiences. Like I feel so special that I got to do that. And we as actors really have that opportunity where yes. you can be a mom and, and bring, bring your kid our kids a lot. To yeah. work. What yes. a great gift because you can do it all. Truly a great gift. What would you say is the most important lesson to teach young men nowadays? I know it's hard, right? It's really hard. Because it's that balance of you want 
them to be sensitive and in touch with their feelings and realize what is truly powerful about masculinity. But also you don't want to make raise them so they're too soft that they can't function in a toxic patriarchy or patriarchal society. Right. It's you know what? Raising boys, as you know, it's a it's a huge responsibility, as is girls, but um as a woman making sure you're not seeing any signs of misogyny or bullying or things that are ever present currently in their everyday lives that they're watching. You know, I remember when Trump got elected, my younger son said, Mommy, I was about to see the first woman elected and now I saw a bully elected. Mm. And it, 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 you know, spoke to him so deeply and I was happy because I knew what I had done in raising him and who and kids come with personalities and who they are and how to sort of help mold these humans into the best they can be is something that you have to be conscious of, especially in this society. I agree. So, you know, and, I, and I think you're right to say, especially with boys. Yeah. Because right. I think there's an innate empathy and compassion that comes along with raising girls. Yeah. Um, that is just part of who they are. Right. Like my daughter, the way she cares for a baby doll uh-huh. is the most pure love that is not taught, that yeah. is just inside of her. Right. Whereas I feel like boys have a little bit more, like we need to nurture that. Not that it's not in them, but uh-huh. we need to nurture it a little bit Well, and bit I think more. we need to let them allow to feel that. It's okay to cry over that. It's okay to feel empathy just because everyone's teasing that one kid because of X, Y, Z. Well, let's think of his origin story. What's what's happened to him? Where did he come from? Why is he like that? And my son, my older son said something really fascinating. He said, you know, high school is so stupid in terms of the social aspects. Like, I don't care if those are the popular kids, if those are the loser kids, I want to talk to someone who's intriguing my mind or makes me, inspires me to want to do something creative or something. And he's spending all his time right now, he's a musician, with another musician, and they spend hours creating music together. And when I hear this kid talk, I'm like, oh, wow, they have very similar brains. That's fantastic. There is a natural organic process to growing up, whether you're a boy or a girl. And parent, we know a lot of things. Parents know a lot of things. But we don't know everything. And it's okay to be part of a conversation, like to, to take part in a conversation with your children about what's the best way for us to communicate right now? What's the best way for me to teach you to behave respectfully while also respecting your organic process as a human? You hear different versions of it, but I've heard things like boys will be boys or it's just natural for them to be this way. Uh, more recently, it has, it has sounded like it's just locker room talk. And I think not only is this negative to women, right? Not only does this put more pressure on women to somehow be more moral than men or something like that, but I think what a disservice to boys and men, right? I don't know about you guys, but the men and the boys in my life are a lot smarter than that. And they are really wonderful people who absolutely can control themselves. This is specifically how you ask for consent. Are you okay with this? Does this feel comfortable to you? It's as simple as that. Parents just need to model that for their kids. What does it mean to to have consent? Both people that are doing something want to be doing it. Let's say you guys are in class and you notice that one of your classmates, a male, puts his hand on one of your female classmates' legs and doesn't have permission. Is that okay? No. 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 If it's sexual harassment, you can't do that. And, you know, when things arise in the news, I'm sure you're the same. You say, this is why that's not good. Like, my son quite 
um, innocently asked me, why is nationalism such a bad word? Why does that have such levity to it? And I had to explain to him the difference between being patriotic. And I love that he asked. I love that he's not walking around going, well, I love America, so I guess I'm a nationalist. No, here's what comes with that. And I said, even if initially that word didn't have this kind of weight, it's the same thing that a swastika used to represent good luck. Now it's that. And so having that meaningful conversation so he then doesn't go out in the world and ask the wrong person that. You know, you have to be prepared to teach them and answer those difficult questions. As a mother, what keeps you up at night? Oh, gosh. I would say currently the gun control situation is beyond. It's shocking. And your efforts are extraordinary. I'm so inspired by you every day. I cannot believe— We couldn't do it without you. Your support (laughs) has been amazing. So thank you. I mean— It's just so shocking how the leaders of this country allow everybody to be sitting ducks, including their own children and grandchildren. Like, it doesn't make any sense. I can't figure out, like, do they just think it would never affect them? I think it must be. It must be part of that narcissistic plague that thinks I'm untouchable. I can do whatever I want sexually to women. I can carry myself with this misogynistic thing. I think it's just an extension of of that, that ego of thinking that, something bad would never happen to their children or and, and you know what we've seen it time after time of with course. with white grown white men getting away with of course horrible horrible things horrible horrible things yeah and i mean thanks to you also with the me too movement coming out and and being very verbal about what it means to say no what it means to make sure um, it's completely. Have you had that conversation? Yes, with your sons? absolutely. And they get it innately, and I knew that they're very, uh, they're so sweet and conscious and awake, um, aware boys. But but having that conversation of being even extra careful when you're in college and you see a bunch of kids drinking and doing crazy stuff, and you stand by and say nothing, you're you're you know. Right. You're complicit in that. And and I think it's important to at least have those conversations. You know, I have just... them. People think I'm crazy because I have them with my kids now, not having any sexual connotation at all, yeah. but just the idea of consent. I feel like I need to teach them now. You have to. You yeah. have to. There and is it, no reason for your daughter to hug everybody that wants a hug. Yep. Kids know who's dangerous and who's not or who they don't feel right about. You. But it's we teach absolutely. our girls like give your uncle a hug, no. give him a hug. Uh-huh. Come on, give him a hug. Mm-hmm. And there's just a certain point. And I, you know, the way in which we teach that stuff in my house is, you know, Milo, who's my son, ask your sister if you can use that that toy. Ask her right. if it's okay. Ask for permission. Mm-hmm. Ask for consent. And I say the word consent, and he'll say, "Bella, can I play with your toy?" And she'll either say yes or no, and if it's no, Guess what, Milo? No means no. Yeah. <laughs> Good. You know? But you're instilling the values in them young so they get it. So they're not like, wait, I can't do everything right. they want as opposed to giving your kids. Because the, we uh, teach right. these lessons so late. Yes. Unfortunately. Uh-huh. And I think that we teach them when these kids are hormonal. Right. And who knows what they're actually absorbing and what right. they're not absorbing. No. I, I was honest with my kids from the start. When they began asking questions about sexuality, I was honest from the start. What was that conversation like? Uh, you did know, you have to t- tell them or did you give them a book? What happened? I remember having a book, a pretty funny book. There was a funny book about— I, I learned about sex through a book. Yeah. There was a funny Where, where did book. I come from? Something like that. I think like it was that. called. Yeah. But explaining to them so that they're not— you know, first of all, allowing somebody to inappropriately touch them. Right. And secondly, to not be the kid at school not knowing. Um, and just How old were they? 
I would say five, five and six. Yeah. yeah. I'd say if they're asking, they can be told. And But at that age, you come at it from a scientific place, not I mean, as a my, pleasure place. My right? babies both think that, that women give birth through knives in their stomach. Because well, I had mine, mine did at that point because same. I also <laughs> but I leave it like that. I'm like, yep. Yeah. Last night, actually, Milo said to me, Mama, when they cut me out of you, yeah. do they use like a big knife? So, no, it's just a little tiny knife. Anyway, you know, yeah. like steering. Yeah. But my, my brother just had a baby. So Aww, I think they're congrats. very curious as to how, like, okay, the baby was in Charlotte's belly yeah. a week ago, and now it's in the living room. Yeah. <laughs> how did that happen? Yeah. Which is so sweet. Do you think that there was a – I mean, I believe that growing up, there is a huge disservice on how women were – forced to look at motherhood as being this sort of romantic ideal where we're like laying on the white sheets and there's this beautiful baby. And I think we need to really steer away from that and start being super honest about how fucking hard being a parent is Mm -hmm. and how, yes, there are are moments of uh, complete an utter joy and feeling really um, like you're uh, contributing to society and the world and raising these people to be good humans, hopefully. But I would say 85% of motherhood is about fear and worrying. (laughs) And I don't know one person that disagrees with me, one mother that disagrees with me on that. And the fear comes at different stages, right? right? It's you, you You're afraid of different things along the way. But until we're really honest about, I think, how hard it is, I think it's important. I think it's important for people to understand, especially new mothers, new fathers that think that their woman should, like, you know, snap right back into shape and be happy and think that this is such such a great thing. And But I fought with – I don't know if you did. I fought with, like, this idea of – do I want to go back to work? I don't even know if I want to go back to work. Am I – and all of these things that are so – like how am I going to feel driving away from the house, leaving my children with – you know, in a, in, a, in a caretaker situation, whether that be school or – and every step of the way, I feel like there's a certain amount of fear that comes along with it. Like now my little girl is four and we've obviously grown out of the fear of – you know, am I going to break her when you first have this baby or are they going to get hurt or are they going to get sick? Yeah. But now we've gotten to this like, – like I looked at her the other day after dance class. She was looking at her belly in the mirror and I was like, oh, God, she's not – I was fearful that she was getting that unhealthy perspective of her body. Yeah. And – I don't know. I just feel like every, there's something to be afraid of every step of the way. And we have to support each other through that, especially women and a sisterhood. But in order to do that, we have to be honest about how scary it really is. I think all that's really fair. And I think right? being there for each other is especially helpful when those fears get carried away and they override what's really happening. Because it's easy to get lost in the fear of, 
what if something really terrible happens? You know, what if this mole is something else? Like, and as a mom, you love so much from the moment it's in your belly, right? You love so deeply. I remember my mom was very overprotective and it used to drive me crazy at 16, right? Like I just wanted to run out and do it. And I was a good kid, but I remember being very frustrated. The second I had my son, I called my mom in Toronto and said, I'm sorry for everything I ever did. Because you realize how you are so responsible for this little life. My mom wasn't crazy. No. She was just a mom. Right. <laughs> That's but, what I did. But I, I thought she was fucking yes, out of her mind. So did I. But I have been there for some of my sisters who are like, oh, there was this lump here and tell me about this and tell me about that. I'm like, baby, let's calm down. Let's yeah. go do this. And I think it's so important to be there for each other, to not be afraid to verbalize such fears, to talk about them from the moment of conception. I mean, when everybody was reading What to Expect, When to Expecting, I got The Girlfriend's Guide to Pregnancy. If you've read that book, it's fucking brilliant. Yeah. There's a whole chapter on your vagina. Right. The old gray mare, she ain't what she used to be. Right. It's why I chose to have two C-sections. I read about how in other countries it's celebrated to make the choice for your own body. Right. And that's what I wanted to do. And some people think that's well, horrible. And shame, that's fine. shame is a big thing yeah. in our country, but those, especially shaming women. Yes. And so being able to make your own choices and being honest about what really goes on. I think it's so important, and I think that it's happening slowly. I think the dialogue between us and honesty is happening slowly, and then something like the Me Too movement propels that to a whole other level. I would never have spoken about my own abuse publicly had it not been for what you did. Mm. Never. And think of how important that is to other kids, other women who talk to me privately on Twitter saying, wow, you know, you helped me, you saved me, you helped me realize I'm not alone. Right. Got to talk about this stuff. Well, and it, it feels like, I mean, sexual assault is a whole other thing that we feel shame for and that we don't discuss publicly. That is getting better. But I feel like we have gotten so far away from the village mentality. And I think that it is very, motherhood is very hard without that. Because if you think about other nations and how they do parenting and motherhood. Um, You know, the grandparents are always involved in raising the kids. There is a neighbor that is, or if you're in a village, there's, you know, someone that's within the same village that can breastfeed your baby or even just being able to see other women breastfeed. We don't get that luxury in this country at all. It's bizarre. And mostly we pay for our health (laughs) Right. The first person I saw breastfeed in this country was me. Right. The yeah. first time I saw a baby latch onto a breast was my baby latching onto right. my breast. Yeah. The fact that we have to hire a lactation consultant <laughs> to teach us to do the most natural thing in the world, right. that doesn't happen in no. in, you know, any sort of country that celebrates a community or a village. You're so right. I remember reading about um cuz we were we were discussing sleep training and having them in the bed, which I I did. I did and, too. Yeah. And I remember reading about how other countries and other villages, you know, get through these different scenarios. And there was one— There's no such thing as sleep training in other countries. That doesn't exist. And there was one— there was one tribe, I can't remember what it was called, but the women keep their babies on them all the time. Yeah. Pee-pee, poo-poo. Yeah, everything. <laughs> everything. And they said, is it true women in America put their babies in cages in other rooms to sleep? Like, you know? <laughs> yeah. I was like, wow. Well, that it, that's, must be how it seems right. to people, right? right? Yeah. Like, why would you put your baby down yeah. in a dark room by itself? And I remember, like you said, the judging thing. I remember this kind of friend of mine. She was really with a man who I was friends with. She was dating him. Really judging me harshly for sleeping with my babies, which felt so natural to me. And they're completely confident, fantastic teenage boys, so it clearly didn't and do anything to damage them. Do they sleep with you ever? 
once in a while they'll jump into bed. Yeah, and I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but but that that felt good to me, and that's what I was doing, and it didn't matter what anyone said to me. Yeah. Cut to two years later, she has a baby, and guess who's in bed? Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, this whole idea of sleep training, I think, is all about making money, right? I think it. Someone was able to capitalize on the fact that mothers are exhausted, right? And they're not getting sleep, right. so they created an in- sleep industry, right. which is probably a billion dollar industry. Uh-huh. And my issue with all of that is, I feel like it cuts off a woman's ability to use instinct. Right, because I feel like instinct would tell us when it's okay to put a child down alone, or when it's okay, and we don't rely on instinct anymore. We don't allow it to be cultivated, right? Because we're reading and getting information from specialists, quote unquote, who are making a fortune off of our not only insecurities but our our uh, vulnerabilities, right? And like you said, there's a judgment about it. If you don't sleep train, there's a judgment about it. If you don't do certain things a certain way, like, guess what? If you are not hurting your children and you're doing something that innately, like you said, here's that word authentic again, feels good to you. We're all doing the best we can do. Right. Exactly. We really are. Yeah. A new study from the University of Michigan found that 60% of the women polled have been criticized for their parenting styles. A poll by C.S. Mott Children's Hospital in Ann Arbor found 61% of mothers of children five and under have been criticized for their parenting by complete strangers on social media. I definitely think everybody has their different ways of parenting and everybody has their own method of doing stuff. It's not really anybody else's business how they go about and do stuff. <laughs> Brittany Bell thinks there are better things to do on social media besides call out parents. I definitely hope it stops. People just become more understanding and nicer to other moms. Social media has provided a soapbox for every single person in the world. So they believe that their voice should be heard and it can be heard instantly. And we've seen it time and time again with moms all across the country, whether they're celebrities or everyday moms. It's scary because like, you don't know who's going to judge you. Um, what you're doing. I think just we as human beings, we judge on a constant basis. And then when we're in charge of another human being, it just puts that much more pressure. So this idea of shame, I think, is really potent right now um, with this administration and with the Republican Party in general, especially with women. And I feel like being an activist for me for the last 30 years was so much about fighting for progress, and now it's about fighting to make sure things don't go get rolled back. Right, which it feels like often. Often. Yeah. So what do you think as far as being a woman, what is the thing that you're most afraid of being rolled back? I know. question, Ms. Milano. It's a lot right now. (laughs) That's a good question. I think it's really the whole picture, the whole misogynistic tyrant bully picture of how women were treated in the 50s. That covers so much. That's a big blanket. And I think um, all the work you're doing with the ERA and – I mean, there's there's so much of what I would be afraid of as a woman that would get rolled back. And you watch um, Handmaid's Tale and you're like, wow, that's not far off from right. what some of these assholes I can't watch want. it. It gives me panic attacks. It's too close to me. I, I feel very strongly to lose any of those things would be a tragedy. To right. lose any of the things that we've fought for and won. Do you think there's a way to frame the narrative around abortion to allow the other side to uh, at least have empathy for women that are making that decision. I think it's so damn tough. 
I think that the people that are so against a woman's right to do what they want with their body are so ingrained in their um, um, religious teachings that it completely – they can't see any other way and it creates this anger dialogue as opposed to an empathetic dialogue, as opposed to listening to my life was in danger or I was raped or – There blah, are blah, blah. other religions where – like the Jewish religion, it – women should have access to abortion. Right. But I'm saying the ones that are so against it, yeah. it's like in their cells and unless they were really faced with it, I don't know. And it drives me crazy when men think they can choose. Remember that thread from that woman that had so many babies where men don't need to choose like let's get – let's cut all their – Yeah, exactly. Them all, yeah. You know, vasectomies yeah. then. Basically like, this thread <laughs> said there is not one – procedure that we force a man to do or undo (laughs) with their penises. Right. And yeah, it's true. But the way I kind of, this is going to sound terrible, so forgive me. But the way I kind of think we could come together is if you frame it with an analogy that might speak to them. So for instance, another thing that I care deeply about is animal uh, rights. Like I, first of all, I'm vegan and I'm not saying everyone should be vegan, but I am so the, the animal cruelty that goes on in factory farming is right. shocking. And so I feel the same way personally to someone that could stab, beat, like destroy a beautiful innocent pig or like cow or whatever. I feel the same way that you should be vegan. Look what's going on in this industry, mm-hmm. right? So if you could frame it in something that might be important to them, that might speak to them, like to me, animal rights is a huge thing. It's hugely important. So to someone who's so anti-abortion, like what speaks to you so strongly that if that right was taken away, you'd feel really protective of? Right. Maybe there's a way to come together in framing an analogy or a different dialogue because find- they can't comprehend why it's so important to you to be able to choose what to do with your body. I also find asking them the question of in what instance would it be okay for a woman to make the choice? Right. Is it no instance at all? Right. Um, what about rape and incest? Like really making them invoking and provoking thought right. about it. And by the way, showing the history. You take away these rights, women will still have abortions and they will die. Right. And the other thing is like to, to – white, affluent women will always be able to get a safe abortion. Right. What we are limiting is the the access to the most at risk. Right. And you said something clever on Twitter not long ago. It was something like being pro-choice does not mean pro-death. Right. You're not, like you're not saying well, I want to kill unborn I'm so babies. sick of them being called pro-lifers. Like right. we're all pro-life. Right. Stop with the pro-life. Right. What you are is anti-choice. Right. You're anti-my right to And choose. doesn't that fall right into the whole narcissistic, misogynistic bullshit that we're facing in this country right now? Do we really think Trump has never had a mistress ask for an abortion? I mean, come on. I don't think we could probably count on one hand how many times that's probably happened (laughs) to him. And when he did the interview and said women should be punished. Punished. And that guy still got elected. Mm -hmm. That's fucking terrifying. Let's talk about the anti-Semitism that's going on right now. It's pretty bad. Why do you think – I mean, do you just think it's because Trump has made it okay for people to talk about – Because he's so blatantly someone that – is not empathetic to immigrants, to people of color, to different religions, who he – there are good people on both sides, really. He's made it okay for that 
type of mentality to be loud again. I mean, I put a picture up of myself and an actor named Rizmanji. He's hysterical. We did a pilot, an on-camera pilot together. And I said, this is what it looks like when Jews and Muslims are friends. We did it. Right. I did it. It was a hugging picture. The hate that I got was so despicable. Like, go back to your gas chamber kike and swastikas and crazy stuff. My Facebook got taken down when I posted about the abuse because the images were there. And um, all my Twitter fans are like, Facebook, fix this. And Facebook went over and said, we've decided to shut you down permanently. If you think this is done in error, you have 24 hours to respond here. And I said, you have five minutes to put back my page or I'm calling my friend at ABC. And I had my page back. Wow. But it's just, they're they're fearless because it's okay with the most powerful person in our country. They're fearless to say all these despicable things that maybe they've been hiding because it wasn't PC to say them. Now anything goes. Yeah, I feel like before all of the racists and bigots were like living in their grandmother's basements. Which is terrifying. With no windows. And now they're all like, oh, I can see the light, you know, and and walking amongst us really vocally. And and it's okay to spew hatred because the commander in chief spews hatred. That's right. And look at that example for our youth. Blame, yes. I think there's blame on both sides. You look at you look at both sides. There was a group on this side. You can call them the left. You've just called them the left that came violently attacking the other group. So you can say what you want, but that's the way it is. One people, one nation, and immigration. I think there's blame on both sides, and I have no doubt about it, and you don't have any doubt about it either. They basically share the concept known as the 14 words. The 14 words are, we must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. What do you, how do you deal with the trolls on Twitter? Oh my God. I know. It's really hard. It's really hard. Sometimes I follow them and friend them and talk to them. Sometimes. And nine times out of ten... I can turn them just enough to have an open dialogue. God bless you. I have never done that before. I block a lot. I block a lot. I mute a lot. What is the deciding factor of who you're going to follow to make that effort with? First of all, we have to remember that Twitter is open to anyone. So you're going to get all levels of the spectrum on who's talking to you. And sometimes I'll be enraged and I'll think, well, maybe this is someone – that could be on the spectrum. Let's just go with that for an example, right? Maybe this is someone that's being led down this road or believes that or X, Y, Z. And if I see something in them that's so wrong, right, that's so completely ridiculous, I might say, hey, you, you said I said this, but this is what I said and here's why. There was one kid who came at me so hard and it was so vehement and so obviously fictitious right? that I had to say, this is why you're take is wrong. And here's how I believe. And he's a Trumper. You could go into his feed. Everything he says is completely Trump, Trump-like. And he said, Tara, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. I get your perspective. Thank you for not telling me I'm a fucking idiot. And I said, tell me tell me where you live and I'll... And and, oh, and he goes, I've actually always been a big fan. I love Harley. I said, tell me... tell <laughs> me where doesn't you, love Harley? Right, right. <laughs> tell me where you live and I'll send you an autograph. So, so I sent him... Wait, I sent him an autograph. Okay, and this kid texts me a couple weeks later on Twitter and says, Tara, I didn't think this was real, 
No one in my life has shown me kindness. And it was like a snowstorm. And the mailman came by with this large envelope and he said, this is for you. I didn't believe it. And I opened it up. It was your autograph. And you made me feel like I matter, even though we differ in every opinion. But this is what makes you special because I don't know many people that would take that time and that and that make that effort. Well, and you can't possibly do it with everyone. But if I can help bridge the divide between some, I feel like that's a little success. Yeah, and 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 worth it, yeah. even if it's just one heart he and felt, mind. He felt hurt. Connected. He felt needed. Yeah. yeah. So that's really interesting. Maybe I'll try that. I don't know. I once got a phone call, and it's sort of similar. Someone ghosted my brother's phone, Oh. and my phone rang, and it came up as my brother, and it was not my brother. Mm. And they distorted their voice. And they were like, fuck you. Why are you, why are you so against Trump? Why don't you leave him alone? Fuck you. Who the f- I mean, and it just went on and on and on. He called me horrible names. And I actually took a moment to to explain to him why I don't like Trump. And I was super patient, very, very kind. And you know, said things like, you know, I believe in equality. I believe that everyone should have the same opportunity. And that's what I fight for. It's not necessarily against Trump. I've been fighting for this for 30 years. It just he represents everything that I've fought against for 30 years. So it comes from a very deep rooted personal belief system. And I'm sorry that you don't agree. And, and I took the time to talk to him. And at the end of the conversation, he said to me, you know what? I understand better now. I'm going to leave you alone. Yes. Yes. And I thought, okay. It's that dialogue. That's the only thing that's going to bring this country together is a dialogue. And people being open to that dialogue. Now, you can't always do it. And the thing that I've learned is there are troll farms set up that, by the way, celebrate when they get their victim to kill themselves. There are Ex- there's extreme what is cruelty. A troll farm is that? Are they getting paid for that? Who are these? I don't people? know if they're getting paid or if it's just part of this thing that gives them this thrill to be these bullies online. But we certainly know Melania is not doing anything about anti-bullying. Right. And I would love. I mean, I would work with you or anyone else on this to get some real legislation against targeted harassment online. Look, in in Germany, you cannot put out Nazi propaganda. You cannot. Why can't we look at all these other countries and what's working? I know. And acknowledge that we are doing things That's not the greatest. Asking <laughs> about immigration, like, is there a country that does immigration well? I'd say Canada. Right. Pretty great. But a lot of Canadians don't think it's being done well. I mean, well, can, Canadians have said, you know, oh, Trudeau just opens the borders and lets anybody in. But I think that is also a result of the Trump bigotry. And I think that those people innately who have that in them right. are empowered by that speech. But by and large, Canadians are pretty sweet, open arm. Like, Real. I, I've never experienced that in my life. But I do think the tragedy of Trump is that he's opened up that way of thinking and made that way of thinking okay and commonplace. And I think it's bleeding into Canada. But I don't think that's innately Canadians. Whether it's uh, folks uh, fleeing from uh, world wars or fleeing from civil wars, these people always want the same thing. To be able to live in peace, to raise their families, and to create a better future for themselves uh, and their communities. And that is what generations upon generations of folks have done here in Canada. And that is what has created this extraordinary diverse society we have. Now, Canada remains one of the only countries in the world 
where citizens are, by and large, positively inclined towards immigration. So you have made this incredible, really, really powerful career in voiceover work and portraying being the voice. This is so cool. You are the voice to basically every female strong leader in cartoons. Have you seen a difference with how they're writing? 100%. I was just talking about this. Let's take Harley, for example. Back in her first iteration, she was the Joker's girlfriend. She was abused. She didn't really have her own voice. She would just follow him and be at her own whim. And over the years, she has progressed into this strong entity and being of her own. And even very recently, which I can't talk so about, cool. I had the most empowering moment as her being free of him and being her own power. I'll enforce my foot right up your laugh track. How's you like that, girl power? And I think it's so important for these characters to grow and change with time. And I take really very seriously the responsibility of teaching these young girls and young boys who are friends of girls how to be strong role models and be strong women. And it is changing. I mean, look how amazing the Wonder Woman movie was, right? And that all these strong female characters are now being celebrated. I have a series about um, the DC superhero girls, and it's all these girls in high school and coexisting and and, um, celebrating each other and fighting with each other and supporting each other. Like my favorite expression, one of my favorite expression is roses don't hide the sun from the other flowers. I love that so much. And just being there for each other and encouraging and showing that you can be strong. Like I play Batgirl in that show. She doesn't have any natural abilities, but she uses her brains and she's fearless. And I think that that's, I think in animation, it's making huge strides and what a great place to teach young kids about empowerment. Well, where else? I mean, we don't really have... You know, I wish we had a Mr. Rogers. My kids still will watch Mr. Rogers, which is amazing. How great was that movie? Oh, so good. <laughs> so We're a special great. human. <laughs> but that, you know, that sort of that gentle man that can teach us about it's okay to be angry and it's okay. We don't really have that anymore. Yeah. And to we have to look at cartoons as the alternative to that. Well, and the beautiful thing is it doesn't matter what color the cartoon is. It doesn't matter where they're from. It's so true. It's inclusive. It's so true. I mean, look at My Little Pony that teaches kids all about friendship. Every color of the rainbow is right. represented on that show. Right. And nobody thinks about it, which is a great way to teach kids. Is there is there something in the world of activism and advocacy work that you feel is being ignored that you wish got more attention? Oh, my gosh. Well, or something that we've become immune to that you think is still an issue. Like, I feel that we have somewhat become immune to this idea that there are still children separated from their parents. No, it makes me sick that we can't go right now and pull those babies out. It makes me sick. And I've been working with races, and I'm like, can we go visit the babies? Can we go bring them stuff? So what I've been doing is buying stuff for the families that are released and sending them clothes and stuff like that. I love that. But it breaks my heart. You know how it is when you're not – I'm the kind of mom that misses my kids when they're in school. The the fact that you couldn't hug your kid at night. These kids are dying. They're sick. They're they're being abused. It's fucking heartbreaking. And no, for me personally, no – I haven't become numb to it, but our country as a whole can do so much better. We can be way louder. 
it it's so shocking to me. And it's the same voices that think abortion is bad that are fine with these kids rotting right. away in baby jails. Or it's guns despicable. being in our guns being in our school. It's despicable. Yeah, I was talking to Congresswoman Jayapal about civil disobedience and and it occurred to me it was my own reflection. I, I'm really concerned that because there's so much we're fighting for right now, that civil disobedience doesn't really mean what it used to mean. Mm-hmm. Because there's always a march. Right. There's always a protest. Right. There's always a rally. We're sitting in. We're dying in. And it feels like nothing is having impact mm-hmm. anymore. Yeah. What do we do to make impact? I mean, look, what has to happen? Look how many women were elected into Congress. That's right. a huge, huge, huge win. And women of all color and ages. And wow, that's a huge accomplishment. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is is the marches, even though they seem like nothing's going on. People all over the world are seeing that not everybody's Trump in this country. That right. matters. When you travel the out to another country and they say – and they see, I, I just did a con in you know, Ireland. People are like, oh, your president's crazy. <laughs> but we know you're not. We right. see what you do. They see yeah. what we do. And that's So vital. maybe, yeah. So perception, and like global perception. It's a big deal. A and big by deal. the way, the individual perception. I went to um, speak on behalf of races in front of the White House. And this girl came over to me in tears. She looked about 13, 14 years old. Braces. And she goes, Miss Strong, I've been a fan of yours for so long. And I'm a DACA kid. And Aww. seeing you fight for my rights. That meant everything to me. Yeah. You know, yeah. Did, did we fix it all today? No. But each little thing in this environment has to be considered a win and not going to sleep yeah. ever again and allowing this to – I mean, I can't imagine if he gets elected again. I can't. I can't. Well, I mean, I think that it's a possibility. I know. Isn't that terrifying? And I think we really got to not fuck up this primary. Right. And I think that we have to make – and it's sad because we have to make our decision on – on the Democratic candidate, not based on who would make the best president necessarily, but who would beat Beat him. him. And so that's why I'm not coming forward and supporting anyone as of yet, because I don't really know who's going to be able to beat beat him. Can you describe the feeling of being a part of civil disobedience? Oh, my gosh. Well, I've always had a strong anti-bullying platform because I witnessed it so much in my own childhood. My mom was heavy. My sister had some social issues that she was very badly bullied and I stood up for her. And, um, you know, uh, same with animal. Like I've always had these sort of these sort of platforms. But to take it to this next level, which you have to know is inspired by you, Alyssa. Aww. No, I'm serious. You're Don't. such. Thank you. That's, no, that and, means and a lot. when I think about all the things you fit in, it makes me feel bad that I can't even fit in half. I have no <laughs> idea how you do it. I have no idea how you do it. Like, I was supposed to go to rally, and my kid's like, Mom, I need you to take me to this. And I'm like, You know, the balance is tricky when you have it's, kids. It's very hard. Yeah. yeah. And so, um, your, I appreciate that. No, Thank you. it's and my you truth. You inspire me every day to keep going. No, so. it's my truth. And you inspire thousands, probably millions, to stand up and say, wait, I can do both. I can be a mom. I can be a professional. And I can go to this rally and stand up for what's right. And you feel like you're doing something. You know, um, I spoke at a child separation rally downtown L.A., and they were supposed to get me something that they wanted me to say that was going to be representative of some family that was in that center and blah, 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 blah. And I said, let me know. Let me know. And the days before, nothing, nothing. The day of the rally, I'm like, I know in my head how I feel about the child separation, but what is it that you wanted me to say? Yeah. Come meet me in the VIP area. But we have it for you. Go to the VIP area. She goes, Tara, we got nothing. I'm like, got it. Got <laughs> on stage. Yeah. 
got everybody going, yes. said everything in my truth, and my boys, who had never they came to the women's rally, but had <laughs> yeah. never seen me just get up and do that. Took my hands, Aww. walked to the jail afterwards, and said, "Mom, we are so proud of you." Aww. I'm totally that's everything. Yeah. That's everything. Yeah, and to feel like you're doing something that and what that an kid. what an important lesson for your boys to see, like just this strong woman yes. that's that's fighting for everyone, right? right? And I mean, look at you—you so you stood up to someone with a gun at at a <laughs> at a NRA rally. Yeah. He came at you with a gun. Yeah. And you were still in your adult, in your compassionate state, in your empathetic state. Well, I think that there's something so powerful about marching and walking and chanting with people um, using their voice and using their power. And it's a there's an essence to it that I've never really been able to describe. And I talk about this because it's the only way I could describe it. It feels like your heart is like swollen and the only way for it to come out is through like tears and power. Right. And to stand with other people and face that oppression or whatever you're fighting against in your power. Right. And once you get a little taste of that, it becomes addictive to do it more and to help more. At the detention center, when we walked by, there was a very emotional moment where we heard the clanging and the lights that they could from the cells. And the people that knew how to say it in Spanish were teaching us how to say, we are with you, we hear you. And we were looking up and I said to my my boy, I saw a little tear and I said, you see that, Papa? He's missing his baby right now. Wave. We hear you. We hear you. And and including them in it. Wow. Yeah. And lessons that they'll never, they'll never forget. And it'll always be a part of them because it's a part of your life. Yeah. And what a gift. Yeah, and look at Bella responding to stuff politically. She's so damn smart. <laughs> they, they both are. They're both. I mean, I'm you sure know, but, but Bella's but response to certain political things, things is so funny. I think it's so important to talk to them because even the things that you don't think they're picking up. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember bef- like not having the family separation conversation with them. Right. But then I had to have it with them because right. we were in the car, in the minivan. Right. The kids are in the back. My son takes off his headphones. He was watching Cars. And he says to me, Mama, nobody's ever going to take you away from me, right? And I knew that he had heard from somewhere, whether right. it be passing a radio station or, you know, a TV channel. We try to keep the, the, the TV off of the news channels when they're around because we are aware that they're absorbing everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we had to have the conversation, but it's so, there's something so scary about this. We know what we're teaching them. We know what they're getting from us because we're instilling it in us. We're making it a a point to teach that to Mm -hmm. them, but there's things that they're absorbing that they can't not be absorbing. And is that not only harmful to their own psyche and their own well-being, but also, are they getting any of that that bigotry subconsciously? Uh, and am I doing enough to overcompensate what they're getting from everyone else? Right. Well, and I think the beauty of what you're doing is keeping that dialogue open, right? So right. my son could say, why is a nationalist a bad word, right? right? Keep it open so they don't feel stupid about asking a question that might in the news be portrayed off. For Trump to say, I'm a nationalist, right? right. That makes kids go, huh? Right. Ask the question. Let me explain to you what that really means. Right. As long as yeah, you keep you the dialogue sort of open. To, you have to look at everything as right. an opportunity. Right. Right. Yeah. To to teach and not only our kids, but to hopefully reach people and affect their hearts and minds and make it and make it personal. This is personal. And yeah. I hope that people 
listening right now realize how when we fight for what we fight for, um, whether it be social justice or civil rights or political rightness or righteousness, what we do and why we do it is a very personal thing. I don't know one activist or advocate that fights for things just to fight for them. No. It's always or for a, attention. No. For, I mean, God, no. It's in you, and you have to use. You've been given this gift to this voice that people listen to. You have to use it for good. Yeah. Because then what? Because then what? Right. What are you most unapologetic for? I am for sure anti bullying. Yeah. For sure racism, women's rights, immigration. There's so many, and I feel so strongly about about these issues. I am not apologetic about any of them. And I have people in my world saying, you should be careful. You shouldn't do this. And sometimes standing up, as you know, gets you in trouble. Yeah. But I don't care. And it care. can jeopardize your career. It really has. I mean, I've yeah. lost so many endorsements and commercial campaigns because I'm just too much of a risk factor. Right. You know, well, she's alienated half the country. but But at least you're authentic. And I can't. I wouldn't be able to sleep with myself. Same. I just wouldn't Same. be able to look at myself in the mirror if I didn't. And by the way, I don't know that I'd be doing anything differently if I were, you know, uh, an organizer in a group, right, right, that wasn't a celebrity. Right. But what a gift that we have this voice yes. that we can reach so many people. Exactly. Our LGBTQ friends. I mean, there's so many communities at risk from hatred. We have to stand up. And if we don't, then we're complicit. Yeah. And it's endless, and that's endless. overwhelming. And, and I am not apologetic about any of it. I'm so glad I have a sister in this fight, marching, rallying. Same. I'm always by your side. Same. Thank you so much. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. From the time we are children, we are taught to be silent. We are taught that it is more important to be polite than to stand up and say what we think, that we can suffer almost anything so long as we do not rock the boat. If we are women, especially, we are taught that if the boat needs rocking, it's someone else's job. And so we watch as things we know are wrong happen, and we hold our tongues. We feel the wrongness burning inside of us, but the great icy wall of our conditioning is often too tall and cold and slippery to scale. And what's on the other side might be worse than it is here. It is the unknown. It is unknowable until we climb that wall, so we stay quiet. Until that is, something so terrible, so intolerable happens that it transforms us into beings of power for whom scaling that great icy wall is nothing. We decide that facing the unknown of the other side is so much better than staying silent and taking the great injustices on this side. And we speak, and the world changes. For millions, the Me Too movement helped us find our power together. In solidarity, we spoke aloud what many of us previously held in silence. And in this power, we are finding accountability. Politics industry, homes, all are changing because we dared say the things we had to say, even though they weren't anything nice. As Madeline Albright said, it took me quite a long time to develop a voice. And now that I have it, I'm not going to be silent.
Speak, friends. Speak loudly. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Sim Sarna and Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnik. It's edited by Josh Windage. Our production associate is Daniela Silva. Music by Josh Cook and Alicia Eagle. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry Not Sorry. Sorry Not Sorry.